Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Okay, I've been looking forward to talking to my first guest tonight for a very long time. When we first launched the show nine months ago, earlier this year, we made a big list of people we wanted to talk to, and Liz Cheney was always near the top of it. Well, tonight, Liz Cheney is here, here with me in New York, and this would have been pretty surprising to me a few years ago, I'm going to be honest. I I did work on John Kerry's campaign in 2004, and I tried very hard to defeat George Bush and her father. Four years later, I was a part of the transition when President Bush and Vice President Cheney handed things over to Barack Obama and Joe Biden, peacefully, by the way. Of course, Liz Cheney had a political career of her own, one that will come to be defined by her work on the January 6th committee and her willingness to speak out against Donald Trump when it wasn't always easy. And look, I know that when I sound the alarm about the former president, which I do frequently, there are a lot of people who tune me out who I'm not getting through to. But when Liz Cheney sounds that alarm, as loudly as she's doing right now, that's another thing entirely. And it's a perfect time to be talking with her because Donald Trump is talking a lot about his desire to be a dictator. And that's because he wants to be a dictator. That part is pretty clear. The harder question to answer is, how do we talk about that? Because the sad reality is there are people in this country who hear him say things like that and they like it. As Republican Senator Mitt Romney put it, Trump's base loves the authoritarian streak. I think they love the idea that he may use the military in domestic matters and that he will seek revenge and retribution. That's why he's saying it and has the lock nearly on the Republican nomination. The senator's right, in my view. Even though a dictatorship is antithetical to basically everything the country stands for, lots of people in Trump's base kind of love it because it makes him sound strong. My friend Dan Pfeiffer summed up this problem in a great piece out this week, saying that when the world feels out of control, people are willing to sacrifice a lot for the perception of safety and security. We've seen that over and over again in politics. That's why it's so important to call out Trump's authoritarian rhetoric for what it really is. Not a sign of strength, but a sign of weakness. Authoritarianism isn't actually a governing approach that comes from a position of strength. Authoritarians around the world want to control the people they govern because they can't earn their support and they don't respect their votes. It comes from a place of desperation, not a place of leadership. See, Donald Trump has never had the support of a majority of this country. He lost the popular vote in 2016 by nearly 3 million votes. He lost the popular vote in 2020 by 7 million. And when he lost that election, he tried to steal it. He tries to convince his supporters that elections are rigged before they even happen. That's what's happening right now, because he's afraid he will lose. He threatens to lock up his critics because he can't handle the public disapproval. He talks about going after the media because he's pretty thin-skinned. I think we know that. He cries fake news because he can't handle the truth. He exaggerates his personal wealth because he's insecure. Literally everything that he does is actually a sign of weakness, masquerading as strength. Now, This facade could, of course, come crumbling down as Donald Trump spends much of the next year sitting in a courtroom. 
especially since the justice system isn't susceptible to his strongman tactics. We saw a sign of urgency from special counsel Jack Smith just this morning. Smith asked the Supreme Court to decide whether Trump is immune from prosecution for crimes committed while in office. And just hours later, the court said it would consider whether to hear the case on an expedited basis. But here's the thing. There's no certainty he will be held accountable before the election. There's no certainty that the courts will stop this wannabe dictator, which is why this message is so important here. And the message needs to be that we're not talking about a strong leader here, but a weak one. Joining me now is former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney. She's the author of the new book, Oath and Honor. It is such a pleasure to be here with you today. And I just want to thank Thank you for speaking out as much as you have, because it's not easy to go against the grain of your party. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, these issues really are ones, as we've talked about, that, that span across party lines. I want to start kind of where I ended there. Uh, which is about dictators. You have worked around the world. You've worked on national security issues. Is Are some of these impulses, these authoritarian impulses of Trump's, are, are they a sign of strength? Are they a sign of weakness, as I said? What are your thoughts? You know, I think that um, the first thing I would say is that we have to be very careful that we don't um, sort of ignore uh, exactly what you're pointing to. Uh, because this is the United States of America, because we've never really had to deal with somebody We've never had to deal with somebody like this before. Um, It could become too easy to say, well, dictatorship can't happen here. Uh, And I think that the really important message of this is that the the people who were around him, uh, who stopped the very worst of what he was trying to do, we know will not be around him again. Um, And a second term, therefore, will be far, far more dangerous uh, in, in terms of his willingness to ignore the rulings of the courts. Um, you know, we've talked about the pardon power and his willingness to use that if he needs to. Uh, and the fact that he already tried to stay in office once he tried to seize power once. So nobody can responsibly say, you know what, he won't do that again. He's fit to be president. And your book makes that very clear that we weren't prepared in many ways and we need to be prepared now. I want to read a part of your book that really stuck out to me. You said, and you've touched on a little bit of this, certainly Donald Trump would run the U.S. government with acting officials who are not and could not be confirmed by the Senate. He would obtain a bogus legal opinion, allowing him to do it. He would ensure the Senate confirmation process is no longer any check on his authority. The types of resignation threats that may have kept Trump at bay before would no longer be a deterrent. Trump would be eager for those who oppose his actions at the Justice Department and elsewhere to resign. And at the Department of Defense, he would again install his own team of loyalists, people who would uh, act on his orders without hesitation. That's a pretty stark assessment. Um, and I think a lot of people are trying to understand what's the biggest risk and what this all means. So what of those things keeps you up at night? I think, you know, uh, they all do. And, and what, what really keeps me up at night is the idea that um, there are so many people now who seem to have forgotten what he already did once um, and, and who seem not to be focused on how much power we, we instill in someone as president. And um, a president who's willing to do the things we've watched him do before uh, certainly will, will do those things again. I think, you know, the story of the lead up to January 6th um, and, you know, what he was willing to do, for example, at the Defense Department, uh, the fact that today still he is saying, well, you know, Mike Flynn would be part of a future administration. Mm -hmm. uh, And Mike Flynn, of course, said he should deploy the military to seize voting machines, to rerun the election. I mean, it really um, and and these are not people that he's distancing himself from. 
which, you know, it's an important point. If you look, for example, at the text messages between Sean Hannity and Kayleigh McEnany Mm -hmm. on January 7th, they were saying no more crazy people. Basically, keep, you know, keep Trump isolated, keep the crazy people away from him. You know, now he's spending all of his time with surrounding himself. Bannon, exactly. Mike Flynn and others who would be you know, at the top of his administration if he were to get a second term. Which is, this a group of enablers is something you talk right. about a fair amount in your book. I did want to ask you, we were talking about pardon power before the show started, and one of the things you talk about in the book is sort of these powers of the presidency that people aren't maybe aware are a little bit unchecked by how right. the system is set up. There is pardon power. Uh, there, of course, is the nuclear codes. Um, there is being able to deploy military. Right. Are those... Which of those is scariest to you or what do you think people aren't tracking the most of those powers? I think that that in many ways, all of them share the common thread, which is it doesn't matter how many guardrails you try to put in place if you elect a president who's going to blow through the guardrails. Um, and and if you look at the constitutional structure, you know, the, the presidency is checked uh, according to our framers, by the Congress and by the courts. And we're, of course, now in a situation where you know the Republicans that are in the majority in, in the House, certainly, and many of the Republicans in the Senate, uh, won't check him, won't stand up to him. And then if, if you know, the courts issue rulings with which he disagrees, um, he, he, you know, has been cleared and, in fact, ignored 61 out of 62 uh, cases, court cases that he lost, it's clear that neither one of those other entities will be able to be a check on his power. To check him. So one of the things you also talk about is how, and you've said this publicly since the book came out, that you think he'd try to stay in office. Right. What does that look like? What You're so familiar with the powers of the presidency and what enablers could do. How does he do that? Well, first of all, he tried to do it once. I mean, if you think about when he woke up on the morning of January 6th, um, he knew that he had lost the election. Uh, and yet he thought he was going to remain in, in the Oval Office. He thought he was going to remain as president after January 20th. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can imagine a scenario where he could say, for example, you know what, we just need to delay the election, as he's already said right. previously, um, and suggest that for some reason, you know, there was incurable fraud. And so the election couldn't go forward and we should just delay it. And And people hear that and they say, well, but, but the courts would step in. You know, certainly the, a federal court would issue an order saying, no, no, you have to go forward with the election. But if the president ignores the court's orders, um, it doesn't matter that they're compulsory. That, and I think that's, that's the most important thing for people to recognize is that our system, the framework of our constitutional structure depends upon individuals to defend it. Mm-hmm. And the president is, you know, at the pinnacle of, of those who are duty bound to defend it. So we're in real danger if we elect somebody like Donald Trump who won't. I do want to turn to the legal cases. You are a lawyer, of course, and you talk about a lot of these in the book. And there was a what I think is a surprising but pretty big development today because Special Prosecutor Jack Smith is now asking the Supreme Court to decide whether Donald Trump is entitled to immunity from criminal prosecution for his alleged crimes committed while in office. It's something that he has raised as a way to kind of delay or get himself, of course, out of the legal case. What did you make of Smith's decision? Is it, was, is it a wise one? What will it get him? I thought it was exactly the right thing to do. I think he's clearly demonstrating that Donald Trump's efforts at delay uh, are not not ones that he thinks that the, the court should abide. 
Uh, and I also don't think that it's a close call at all. Uh, the notion that somehow a president has got complete immunity for criminal activity um, that he committed while in office, you know, just strikes me as not a close call. So I thought it was the right decision. And then I think you've seen the Supreme Court move very quickly to uh, say that they'll take the case. Which is interesting. And in your book, you also uh, tell a story of how um, back in January of 2022, when the court granted the committee access to Trump's presidential documents, you were a little more, I think, optimistic, it's fair to say, about what they might do. And a lot of people, many Democrats, are skeptical. There's three appointees from Trump on there. As you look at this case, it seems like they've moved rapidly. Yeah. Do you? How confident are you that they will fully take the case, that they will rule in favor of Jack Smith? You know, I think um, it's one of the really heartening things uh, about what's happened over the course of the last several years now uh, that we've seen, almost without exception, judges and justices, it doesn't matter if they were appointed by a Democratic president or a Republican president, um, they, they have been... Uh, absolutely steadfast in terms of recognizing the threat that that Donald Trump poses and upholding the rule of law. And and it was very interesting, as you mentioned, on the committee. um, You know, I think we saw this sort of traditional analysis of the courts, and and I think both sides do it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, the Democrats would say, well, the Republican justices can't be counted on or the Republican appointed uh, judges or justices and the Republicans assume, uh, you know, the opposite. And I think it was very important. What we did see was in every case, um, the courts understood how important the work of the committee was, understood how important it was um, that we be able to conduct the investigation in a timely fashion. And so we really were able to do things like get access to the documents um, on a, a much quicker timetable than than we might have expected. So we shouldn't be skeptical. People shouldn't be so worried no. out there. I mean, I think people should be should be really understand uh, and be impressed with how our courts and, and our judges uh, and justices have operated. And um, but recognize and understand then the damage and the danger that Donald Trump and Republican enablers are doing every time they go out and attack and demonize, um, you know, the, the either the judges or um you know, the special counsel himself. I think it, it's this notion that somehow the, the system is weaponized is, uh, is a really damaging one, and it's wrong. As we look to next year, um, obviously there's going to be a number of high-profile people testifying. And in Georgia, of course, that will be on television. One of the people who's been reportedly on that list is Vice President Pence. You talk about him a fair amount in your book. How do you, I mean, as the daughter of a former vice president, a, a student of history, how do you view, how should we all view the potential for a vice president, former vice president testifying against a former president? I mean, I, I think it's, um, it's a sad thing for the country. Uh, if, and there are so many moments where you just sort of have to stop and think, imagine how we got to this place. But um, the fact that you have, you know, the vice president Pence um, and did what I believe was very uh, important and patriotic duty on January 6th, not to yield to Donald Trump's pressure. Um, but the extent to which Donald Trump's overall plan to seize power really did involve, um, you know, this pressure on the vice president, even after Pence had told him very clearly, and he told him this as the president of the Senate. He said, mm-hmm. I don't have that authority. I don't have the power. I can't do that legally. It's unconstitutional. And Donald Trump as with many other people who told him the same thing, was unwilling to to listen. Do you wish the former vice president was more outspoken publicly? Um, 
Certainly. I think there are a lot of people uh, in our party who, um, you know, we need everybody basically on the field. We need everybody explaining the danger of uh, the former president. Um, and, and I think, you know, that that includes the former vice president. Liz Cheney, I have so much more to ask you about, including those enablers and some of your former colleagues in Congress. You have a lot to say about in this book. We'll be right back with Liz Cheney. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. We are back with former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney. So you do not hold back about some of the enablers in Congress in your book at all. And when you were writing this book, Mike Johnson was not known by a lot of people, but now he certainly is. And I want to talk about him. But first, I want to spend some time talking about Kevin McCarthy. And I want to play some sound from an interview he did just this weekend. Can he count on your support? Yes. That's an endorsement. I will support the president. I will support President Trump. Would you be willing to serve in a Trump cabinet? In the right position. Look, if if I'm the best person for the job, yes. I mean, watching that, I was thinking, why? You're leaving Congress. So why? Yeah. I mean, I I can't I can't explain it. It it, it's it's pathetic. Um, There's a sort of an element of um, uh, it doesn't really matter what Donald Trump has done to the country, what Donald Trump has done to the Congress, what Donald Trump has done to Kevin McCarthy. To him. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's just kind of, you know, um, going back for more. And and I think it's I think it's sad. But I also think uh, history is going to show that that Kevin's unwillingness to do the right thing. And, you know, sort of each time that decision came uh, did real damage. Yeah, I mean, un- unquestionably. You've said that uh, Kevin McCarthy's successor, Mike Johnson, cannot remain speaker through 2025. And-, and we know the role from your book and from a lot of reporting that he played around January 6th as an enabler. Um, you're very familiar with the power of the speakership. So break down yeah. for us. What could he do? Yeah. Why is that so concerning? Well, the new Congress will be sworn in on January 3rd. And um, then on January 6th, 2025, the joint session will happen where the electoral votes are counted. And um, being in a situation where you have a Speaker of the House who's already shown that he's you know, willing to do things he knows to be wrong in order to placate Donald Trump um, presents a real risk. And especially if you begin to think about what does it mean um, potentially if no candidate gets 270, mm-hmm. if the election is thrown into the House, um, if you're in a situation where uh, the speaker can give more leeway to people who want to make objections, can make that easier to do. Um, there are whole sorts, a whole series of things that where we could find ourselves depending upon a majority, depending mm-hmm. upon a speaker, 
um, who, who has already demonstrated he won't stand up against Donald Trump. You've also said that he's smarter than Kevin McCarthy, which maybe is a compliment, um, except to me it's a little scarier. I mean, is he more dangerous? I found Mike, and I say this, um, you know, with sadness because he, he was a friend of mine, yeah. um, but I found his, his, his role was very destructive um, because he's an attorney and because he portrayed himself to the conference as a constitutional lawyer. Mm-hmm. And so he would make assertions that had no basis in the Constitution, no basis in law, that were factually inaccurate. But then he would, you know, sort of do that by claiming he was a constitutional lawyer. And, and he was able to get people to listen to him. He also, um, it was just, just very duplicitous in terms of dealing with issues of, of very significant and grave importance. And that could be a big risk uh, coming up if he's still the speaker. I also wanted to ask you about Mitch McConnell, because you clearly admire him, um, have known him for a long time. Um, and you also express in your book some disappointment with moments where he didn't stand up um, for democracy. Do you worry that if Trump is reelected, um, Mitch McConnell would, despite his personal feelings, which I think everybody can guess, would also not stand up and not prevent some of these authoritarian tendencies we're seeing? Um, I certainly uh, would like to hope that he will. And, um, you know, as I write in the book about the fact that I've known him for decades Mm -hmm. and um, and I think even his political opponents in Washington have respected the way that, you know, he um, has been able to maintain his leadership of the Republicans and and sort of the master operator. But his political judgment, he made, you know, big mistakes that matter a lot when he voted not to convict. Mm -hmm. It was also, I think, a tragic mistake when he would not support the effort to bring the Senate back into session so that that trial could begin more quickly. Um, You know, if the, the Senate Republicans were going to decide that Trump being out of office meant that he could not be convicted, then they should have had the trial Mm -hmm. sooner. And, and I think in both of those cases, you know, and I, I, again, with great respect for Mitch, I think his assessment all along was Trump will go away, you know, and, and I think he thought maybe the impeachment vote in the House was enough. And certainly Trump has to be defeated. He's not just going to go away. Well, and, and if he were to be reelected, he certainly wouldn't have gone away. Right. So he will be in a position where he'll have to make a decision. Yeah. And I think not not just Mitch, but there are many Republicans now who say, well, we know the danger. Um, but then the next question is, would you vote for him if he were the nominee? And and people need to recognize that uh, suggesting you would vote for him after seeing what he had done, uh, you know, is, is really indefensible. I want to ask you about physical safety, because you talk in your book about threats you received and threats your family also received. Um, nothing comparable to you, but I've received threats as a mom, names of my kids, home yep. address. Um, are you still receiving a huge, large number of threats? Um, certainly, they, they still come. Um, I think that, you know, a couple of things about these threats that people, you know, need to focus on. One is certainly, you know, to be in a situation where the threats are coming because of the actions of a former president of the United States is unprecedented. Um, we also saw in Congress, and myself personally, uh, the connection between when Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. would say something on Fox about me personally or about another member, you would see the threats go up almost immediately. And um, and that's, you know, something we called to the attention of 
the general counsel at Fox News when it happened. Um, but it's something people really need to understand the power of of the lies that people are propagating. One of the things that Trump has threatened or has been reported is that he will have a he will seek retribution. There's yeah. a threat of retribution and that he will um, go after his enemies. Are you worried you're going to be on that list? I don't I don't think about that um, because I think it's so important for the whole country, for the future of the country, for the future of our kids, um, that, the, you know, he never get to that place. Uh, one of the really stark moments for me in the last couple of years was having dinner with my husband and my sons and, and looking at my sons and realizing, you know, maybe they won't be able to take for granted that we live in a country with a peaceful transfer of power. And that sort of sudden realization that, you know, We've all, all generations of Americans um, have known that, that that wasn't something that you had to worry about. Now we do have to worry about it. And and so I think making sure that we kind of come back, pull back from that abyss is uh, is what I'm very much focused Not on. Not worried about the enemies list. I may be on it too. Who knows? Um, you've been... You've been asked a lot of times about what your future holds, and I know you're not going to tell me anything particularly new um, on whether you're going to run for a third party. You're welcome to, though, of course, um, or endorse Joe Biden or whatever you may do. You've endorsed some Democrats before. Um, do you have a timeline on when you may make a decision? Um, I think over the course of the next couple of months, um, we'll know more about who the Republican nominee is going to be, who the Democratic nominee is going to be. I think it clearly looks like we're headed in a particular direction on both sides. But I think, you know, understanding sort of how the, the major parties play out. I don't want to assume that we can't beat Donald Trump in the primaries because um, nobody's voted yet. But it certainly looks like we're going to have to beat him in the general. And for me, the decision will be what are the most important things that we need to do most effectively to beat him? Congresswoman Liz Cheney, thank you so much for joining me this evening and Wonderful to for, be for writing the thank book you. you wrote and speaking out. Thanks. The man. book is Oath and Honor, and it's available wherever you get your books. Up next, much more on Jack Smith's request for the Supreme Court to rule on Trump's claim of presidential immunity. And breaking tonight, the Supreme Court is already asking Trump's team to respond. We just talked about that. I'll dive in more to that and much more with my friend Preet Bharara, the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. So much more we're going to get to during this hour. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Today taught us yet again that history certainly has a way of rhyming. Bear with me as we roll back the clock for a moment. Nearly 50 years ago, a special prosecutor, not unlike Jack Smith, was hot on the case investigating the Watergate scandal, a conspiracy so vast it reached deep into the Nixon White House. But in prosecuting the case against Nixon's closest aides, he reached a bit of an impasse over Nixon's refusal to turn over the now infamous White House tapes. When Nixon claimed executive privilege to withhold that evidence, the Watergate special prosecutor made a very bold move. Late this afternoon, there was a stunning and completely unexpected development in the battle special Watergate prosecutor Leon Jaworski is waging to get presidential tapes. He went directly to the Supreme Court and asked it to intervene on his behalf. The decision to bring this question to straight to the Supreme Court came as a bit of a shock to most observers at the time. Yet it was a necessary move, not only because it was of imperative public importance, but also to ensure that the case would be resolved as quickly as possible to permit the trial to proceed as scheduled. And just 61 days later, this is what happened. 
Good morning. The Supreme Court has just ruled on the taped controversy, and here's Carl Stern, who has that ruling. It is a unanimous decision, Doug, 8-0. to zero. Justice Rehnquist took no part in the decision uh, ordering the President of the United States to turn over the tapes. That case you just heard them talk about, the United States versus Nixon, was not only taken up and decided on a quick timetable, it also set a crucial precedent in limiting a president's claims of executive power. Now, nearly 50 years later, that is exactly where we once again find ourselves, as Donald Trump claims even more expansive presidential powers than Nixon ever did, even long out of office. Remember, back in October, Trump and his legal team filed a motion to outright dismiss the federal elections case, citing an absolute immunity from prosecution for actions that he took while president. But earlier this month, the presiding federal judge, Tanya Chutkin, forcefully rejected that motion. She wrote in her decision that, quote, whatever immunities a sitting president may enjoy, that position does not confer a lifelong get out of jail free pass. Trump's team has appealed that decision to the D.C. Circuit, where the case would again be decided before being bogged down again in another likely appeal. Which brings us to this moment in history. Today's special counsel, Jack Smith, like his predecessor during Watergate, cut to the chase and went directly to the Supreme Court. He asked for an expedited ruling on Trump's claim of immunity to, quote, ensure that it can provide the expeditious resolution that this case warrants, as it did in United States versus Nixon. If the court were to take up this question, it could rule well before the scheduled March 4th trial date. And that's pretty key, because as many have pointed out, Trump's strategy here is to delay these proceedings for as long as he can, past the election. He can't escape justice, but he can certainly slow walk it. There's a saying in legal circles, one that you probably are already familiar with, justice delayed is justice denied. If Trump were to delay the trial until after the 2024 election and win the White House, he could evade justice for another four years. This is part of what I was talking about with Liz Cheney. And we know what damage he's capable of doing in the meantime. Former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preparara, is standing by and he's coming. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Up next. So here's the big question. Is Donald Trump immune from prosecution in the federal election interference case? Well, today's special counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to quickly decide on that question before Trump stands trial in March when it's scheduled. And tonight, the Supreme Court said it will consider whether to hear the case on an expedited basis, asking Trump's team to respond to Smith's petition by December 20th. 
I can't think of anyone better to discuss this with than Preet Bharara. He's the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He's also the host of the podcast Stay Tuned with Preet. Now, you've been on the get- show a couple times, but we've never done it in person. We haven't. It's nice to be here. I had to come to New York nice to, to be in set. person with you. Right. So I want to start there because the move today by Jack Smith, it seems to me like kind of a power move. How'd you read it? I think it's a wise move. I think it's a necessary move. As you were talking about with Liz Cheney earlier in the program, there's a clock and it's ticking and it's ticking um, I guess it's not ticking faster than it otherwise ticks, but, but it's ticking. And if Donald Trump can delay the election, the uh, trial in this or any of the other cases, particularly the federal cases, past the election, there are multiple bases on which he can avoid accountability altogether. And so, uh, you know, Jack Smith and his team have said before when they were advocating for an early trial date, and they have a March 4th, 2024 trial date, that it's not only the case that the defense has a right to a speedy trial if the defense wants one, the public does as well. And so th- I think it's an incredibly important and critical move. And whether or not he sees justice, Donald Trump, in this particular case, which I think of the four pending criminal cases against him, is the most profoundly important. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think cuts at the heart of democracy more so than all of the others. Whether he will see a courtroom and an adjudication in a free and open system like we have in this country before the election or ever depends on what the Supreme Court does in this matter. It's pretty, you're making it sound very pivotal, and it's very pivotal. I think it is. It is. Because of the timing, because of how long things take. So I want to ask you about that, because the Supreme Court seemed to come back pretty quickly to say they would consider it, they may consider it. They're asking for the other side's views. They're asking for the other side's views by December 20th. So what are we looking at in terms of timing of when we will know if they will take up the case? And they would have to then decide before early March. Yeah, I think the Supreme Court has indicated by quickly asking for the other side's point of view on this, that they'll make a decision about whether or not they'll take the case, I think, before the end of the year. I mm. mean, you're asking for December 20th. We have the holidays coming up. You know, you don't know that for sure. But on the other hand, just think about the timeline if the Supreme Court does not take the case. You know, as, as people may appreciate, we have three levels of courts in the federal system. You have the district court, and that court made a decision. Usually, it then goes to the appellate court before it goes to the Supreme Court. By bypassing the appellate court, He's trying to get a quicker decision. Now, if it goes back to the appellate court, that could take weeks, if not months, to decide. And then the former president would have another opportunity to go to the Supreme Court. And that takes another few months. Now we're talking about late spring, summer, perhaps even longer. So I think if the Supreme Court does not take this up, we have a real question about whether or not he faces justice in a trial in this matter at all. And as you just said, I mean, Jack Smith simultaneously asked the appellate court to expedite, right, at yeah. the same time. So the Supreme Court could decide still not to take up the case. This is all... Built in suspenders. Built in suspenders. Built in suspenders. Four of them have to decide, right, to take yep. it up. So if they... It, we all know that Trump is doing this to delay, delay tactics. That's to his benefit, to get it past the election. Does the Supreme Court weigh that in, or how so, do they weigh that? So, you know... <laughs> The Supreme Court has been uh, appearing to be more political lately. Um, certainly, it's been ideological, uh, more so in recent times than, than in uh, times past. Whether or not it's engaging in partisan favoritism for Donald Trump, you know, in this matter, I think it would be a weird thing, because whatever the Supreme Court thinks about trying to have a result, and people think that there was a result-oriented outcome and, and intent with respect to Bush v. Gore back in 2000, Supreme Court also does think it's supreme and that it is the final arbiter on all sorts of things, particularly very important things. And this is certainly a very important thing. So I think the interest, no matter how partisan or ideological you may think some of the justices are, and some people think that they are, um, 
that what overrides that is their interest in being the you know, prime adjudicators of things that are important. Um, and this would be that, the issue of whether or not, um, on the substantive letter, level, forget about the procedure and the timing, whether or not a, a president of the United States, based on activity he engaged in, has absolute immunity from criminal prosecution, even when he's not the president anymore. That's an important issue. I think it's readily decidable against the former president, but it remains important. First impression to the Supreme uh, in the Supreme Court, I think they're going to take the opportunity to decide it. You think they're going to take up the case? I, I, I do, but you know, predictions are what you pay for them, and you paid for nothing for mine. <laughs> I didn't. I'll, I'll buy you a Diet Coke later. Um, Donald Trump, I mean, he does not want this to be expedited, of course, his team. No. Uh, we know why, but is there a legal argument they'll make? What is the argument they'll make yeah, as to why it shouldn't the, be? The normal process. It's an ex- look, it's an extraordinary thing to bypass a level of the court. Jack Smith, in his petition to the Supreme Court, um, acknowledged that. Mm-hmm. So this is an ext- you know you acknowledge when you're doing something extraordinary, and he said this is an extraordinary request. But he said also this is an extraordinary case. And time and again, we've seen in these legal matters re- regarding Donald Trump, whether it's in New York State, whether it's in Georgia, whether it's in Florida, whether it's in Washington D.C. Um, one side says this is extraordinary and you can't, you know, this relief you're seeking or this action you're taking is extraordinary. And the response, I think, was quite persuasive. Yeah, because these are extraordinary times, extraordinary circumstances. And the conduct that the former president engaged in also is extraordinary. Which way that comes out, it's unclear. But that's the argument to make, that, that there's no reason to do something that has been done very few times. So you mentioned the Nixon case. Mm. So that's an example of a bypassing of the of the appellate court. There are a few others that Jack Smith and his team cite in the petition. Mm-hmm. But but it's very, very unusual because usually courts are incremental and there's a process and there's a hierarchy. And unless there's a very, very good reason of national importance to do otherwise, that's what they stick with. Preparara, stay right where you are. Well, Not just because I'm going to buy you a Diet Coke, because we're going to talk about Rudy Giuliani, who spent a day in court today as well. Judge already ruled that he defamed Georgia election workers, Shay Moss and Ruby Freeman. But a jury is going to decide how much he has to pay them. We're back after this. Just like in Donald Trump's civil fraud trial, a case against Rudy Giuliani has already basically been decided. The only question is how much Giuliani, like Trump, will have to pay. Today, Giuliani was in court for a trial to determine how much he has to pay for spreading lies about two election workers in Georgia. You might remember Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss. They certainly stuck with me. They testified to the January 6th committee about the torrents of threats and racist abuse they suffered after Giuliani used video footage of them working during the 2020 election count to push lies about the election results. Uh, A lot of threats. Um wishing death upon me, um, telling me that, you know, I'm, I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. As I mentioned, Giuliani was already found liable for defamation, and now a jury will decide how much he will pay. And there's also the course of the question of whether he can pay it. Lawyers for Freeman and Moss said today that they want, quote, a punishment for Giuliani's outrageous conduct and to deter him and others from engaging in that conduct again. Giuliani's lawyer said the amount plaintiffs are seeking is the civil equivalent of the death penalty. It will, they said, be the end of Giuliani. Preparara is back with me. So I want to start by asking you about something Giuliani said today, which was pretty eye-popping. He said it outside of the courthouse just a few hours ago, and we're going to play it and we'll talk about it after. Okay. 
when I testify, you'll get the whole story, and it will be definitively clear that what I said was true. Do you regret what you did to sh- Ruby? Of course Sanders? I don't regret. I told the truth. First of all, the poor guy. He said guy, that today? He said that today. Okay. So there's a poor guy nodding behind him, agreeing with him. So that's a separate question. Yeah. But how does the court look at that? How do they watch that? Do they? Does it matter? Yeah, look, I think um, if he takes the stand and his lawyers have said he may take the stand and maybe other ways to get it in, it's a very bizarre thing to deny um, what the court has already found and what he and his lawyers seem to have already conceded that they engaged in falsehoods. As you pointed out, this is only about the damages. It, I mean, it's quite literally an exercise in damage control or, or damages control, as lawyers would say. So, I, you know, I, I don't know why he says the things he said. Maybe that's why he's in the predicament he's in, mm-hmm. because he doesn't control what he says. But literally, he's he's in a position where he could find that a jury will, will rule against him to the tune of up to forty three million dollars because he doesn't watch his tongue. He also said today that he isn't responsible for how people responded to the claim against Freeman and Moss and the threats and abuse that may, maybe that's a part of his defense. How, yeah, how will that work? It's not a good look. I was struck earlier in, in the in the conversation that you had with Liz Cheney, because this is of a piece with some of the other stories we've heard. You have these famous people who have large, you know, huge audiences on social media and they have huge platforms and they lie about other people. Sometimes it's about people who can defend themselves and themselves have platforms. In the cases of um, Ruby and Shay, the mother and daughter election workers, they, they don't have platforms. Yeah. They just are subject to, um, you know, horrible, abrasive, uh, uh, abusive harassment, death threats. And the person who has the platform in the largest bullhorn, who's uttered the lies, says, well, I didn't cause those other creeps to say those things. Well, all of that's foreseeable. All of that's knowable. All of that is rationally um, understood is going to be the thing that's going to befall these people who you malign and lie about. So I, I think you know, to the extent he's arguing that he's not the proximate cause for that pain and anguish that they have felt and are feeling is not going to go uh, very far with the jury. One of the hopes that was expressed by the lawyers for uh, Ruby and Che is that this will deter Giuliani and others. I mean, it's hard to bet on Giuliani. Well, those are two categories of, of thing. Well, that's true. Giuliani, <laughs> Giuliani and others. Yeah. So, we, you know, lawyers talk about specific deterrence and general deterrence. You know, I don't know that, that Giuliani, look, based on that clip you just showed, He's seem, not deterred. He's, he doesn't seem to be deterred. Um, maybe when he's completely broke as opposed to mostly broke, he will be more deterred. Um, it seems to me that, that much of this is going uh, towards general deterrence and making sure that other people see Rudy Giuliani and others, you know, including in the, in the election voting machine case, there but for the grace of God go I. Maybe I should be careful about what I say. And if I don't have, a, you know, a sense of ethics or integrity on my own... Maybe the pocketbook punishment is what's going to deter me. What if he can't pay the money? Well, you know, that happens all the time. There are people yeah. who, who don't have enough money to pay. Certainly, I don't think he has $43 million. But you can, you can garnish wages, um, you can take property, and you can make sure that he spends, you know, every remaining year of his life in pursuit of paying the judgment back. Do you think uh, that if this case is ruled upon, we will see less threats against election you workers know, outside of Giuliani? You know, I would hope that that would be so. Maybe it would deter some people. The problem is you have these cases and you continue to have people like Donald Trump and others engage in threatening behavior, maligning behavior. 
it doesn't seem, you know, we, we keep talking about all these cases relating to the, to the uh, election of 2020 and in, in Georgia and in the Washington, D.C. And I was thinking on the way over here that based on some of the reporting I'm seeing in Rolling Stone and the Washington Post and other places, I think there's a reasonable likelihood that whether or not Donald Trump gets reelected as president in 2024, he will engage in conduct that will itself constitute crimes going forward. That's a place to end. Preparo, thank you so much for being here this Thanks evening. Thanks for having me, Jen. That does it for me tonight. You can catch the show every Sunday at 12 p.m. and Monday at 8 p.m. on MSNBC. And don't forget to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For now, goodbye from Washington, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.